Himalayas Studios. I, you know, as a person sort of moving through the world and experiencing culture, uh, I, I only have sort of a very mild understanding of Selena as a as an icon, as a as a creator, as an artist, as a celebrity, and so. Um, when I listened to the early episodes, in many ways, that was sort of my first introduction to um, Selena, the sort of figure, the historical figure almost. Um, yeah, with that's the exception, exciting. Yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Uh, and I also, to research. I, I feel so honored <laughs> to be like your Selena doula. Maria Garcia is the senior arts and culture editor at the public radio station WBUR in Boston. But for the last year, she's taken on a different role and challenge. Podcast host. And yes, my Selena Dula. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Maria Garcia's radically personal podcast, Anything for Selena. A love letter to Lorena, the queen, Selena Quintanilla. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Okay, Maria, how would you describe anything for Selena? Yeah, so I know we're talking to a podcast audience, so let me <laughs> <laughs> let me put it in terms of let me put it in podcast language. So anything for Selena, what I like to how I like to describe it to folks, it's like if Dolly Parton's America and California Love had a baby. It has sort of like the rigorous journalism and the cultural analysis of Dolly Parton's America with what I hope is the intimacy and the heart and the sort of like personal journey and personal connection to a place or people that California love has. And so anything for Selena is a culmination of truly my lifelong quest to understand why Selena, why this working class woman has meant so much to me all of my life. Like why has her being resonated with me so much? She's been this touchstone in my life that I come back to when I need to feel grounded. Mm. And I don't think I'm alone. And 
I don't think her legacy has been done justice. Like, there's a lot of Selena stuff out there. There's a、mm. lot of Selena content, but there's nothing that really unpacks how she changed culture, what she's responsible for, the the cultural shifts that she's responsible for, and so this has the cultural analysis of of that. But it's also just like, it's also a love letter. From me to Selena, it is personal. It's like it's my heart in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, building on that, what did she mean to the culture, and what does she mean to you? You know, I discovered Selena when I was seven years old. I was growing up on the U.S.-Mexico border. I spent my early life、um, in Mexico on the weekends and in the states during the week, and so I really came into consciousness, very aware, hyper aware, of the duality within me, and it felt like these two parts of myself were divorced from each other. Whatever side of the border I was on,、um, it felt like the other half of me was missing.、Mm. It, you know, I feel like. I learned to read at the same time that I learned to code switch, you know, on either、mm. side of the border. And then, at such a formidable age, when I was sort of like discovering my identity, I discovered Selena, and it was the very first time that I saw somebody who resembled my community, who resembled my family, who resembled those of us who were in the middle. Mm. That I saw somebody like that ascend in American society and ascend in a way that was still connected to her roots, ascend、yeah. without compromise, and that was incredibly just like moving for me, and it stayed with me. Like it, you know, I was nine when she died, eleven when the movie came out, and throughout all of my life in these different milestones. I've come to realize now, as a 35-year-old, that Selena has been there all along.、Hmm. Whether it was, you know, the last time I danced with my father, it was to a Selena song before he died.、Hmm. When I was in graduate school and I needed some motivation, I would listen to Selena, and I realized that there were all these milestones in my life where she was there. And then, you know, now as like an arts and culture. Editor and critic, putting on my journalism hat and thinking about Selena not just from my heart, but as a journalist and thinking like I'm not alone. This is a collective experience. This was a cultural phenomenon. There is now a whole generation of people who have come of age like me, who have experienced these moments with Selena,、um, and. I want to get to the bottom of like why why she's so resonant now, as resonant as she was a quarter century ago. I want to unpack that that sort of personal side of it a little more. So what I'm hearing is that she's sort of this symbol of, of that bridge that many, you know, non-white Americans have in this country of like being of of that two worlds and and not being you know part of either, right? I feel for Asian Americans that that person was Bruce Lee, right? <laughs> This person was like,、yeah. you don't really have to compromise that much. So, 
When I discovered Selena, this was in the mid-90s, and I like to call it sort of the age of assimilation, at least in, in my lifetime. And I went to a predominantly Latino school. Again, I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. But there was like a hierarchy that rewarded only the most assimilated of kids. Hmm. And so I grew up thinking that I... It was imperative for me to assimilate, frankly, to just kind of get through life. And Selena helped change that. But as an adult, you know, I've come to realize, like, these these traumas or these wounds that forced assimilation creates in you, they don't just dissipate. They stay with you and they inform the career paths you take and they inform the relationships you build. And so coming back to this project has been like a personal reckoning for me to think about mm. my own place in the world and to think about my own identity. So this show is really like a, like a part memoir, part reported story. Uh, was that always the plan? So I knew that I wanted it to be rooted in the personal, that the only way I could tell this story authentically yeah. is if I told it from my lens in the world. In my regular job, I always tell young reporters, like, do not abandon the lens from which you're looking at the world. There is no such thing as coming to a story from no place at all. Everybody looks at the story they're working on from the place in the world that they occupy. And so I knew that I had to bring the personal, the authentic. And, and you know, I don't take over the story, but I'm, I'm definitely with you on this journey or you're with me on this yeah. journey. And then I knew that I wanted, like, I wanted... I wanted it to be meaty. You know what I mean? Because this is a story everybody knows her. I mean, I don't mean to exclude you, Nick. But what I'm saying is... I'm not from... I mean, I'm, I grew up in a whole other country, so like, totally fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is a story that has been told so many times. So I wanted to do sort of an anthology. And so it is a, a story... It does have sort of a beginning, middle, and an end, but each episode really takes a deep dive into different topics, mm. different stories that are all sort of connected together throughout the series. But for example, episode four is about the mainstreaming of big butts and big butt culture. And it's about my theory that there's a direct historical lineage from Selena to the big but culture of today, 25 years later, and it's a deep look at like how we went as a country in a quarter century from aversion to big butts to obsession with big butts. Jennifer Lopez turned the fashion world on its ear with a bottom that shot her straight to the top. She came with two limos, one for her, one for ass. That's right. It's just our time. Thanks, Women Jenny. with the big booty. But there was at least one TV personality who wasn't that impressed. Because there's been all this talk about, like, you know, my girlfriend Gail, I didn't even know this, but my girlfriend Gail and I talk online. She goes, yeah. you know, like, people are always talking about her bottom. This, of course, is Oprah on her show in 1999. 
she goes, but honey, tell her that if she wants to see a bottom, I'll show her my bottom. That's a bottom. <laughs> and everybody's always saying she has a big bottom. You just have a bottom that's in proportion to, yeah. to yourself. Yeah, I have a, I have a, you know, a large rear, I guess, for the norm. But you know, for me, it's normal. But what I norm? No, because black you women know? have had this bottom exactly. all our lives. And it may sound trivial, but what that episode showed me is that butt politics, body politics, is ultimately a story of fetishizing Black features, obsessing over Black features while dehumanizing Black people. And that episode is about the fraught relationship between Latinidad and Mm. Blackness through the lens of Selena. So these are really um, sensitive, emotional topics that you're tackling here. Um, do Do you feel anxious about any of it? And how do you work through stuff like that? Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, let me tell you, the episode after that, after episode four, is an even deeper dive into race and Latinidad and brownness and Latinos reckoning with their own whiteness. And it's told from a very personal, personal lens. Hmm. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, I have moments where I'm like, why do I do this? Why did I choose this? <laughs> why, why am I writing? You know, why am I? <laughs> and so honestly, Nick, it's been kind of excruciating because all of my life, I realized just how much I compartmentalized my work from my internal life. And all of us do that to an extent, right? But I realized how much I did it at the cost of not confronting pain and not, you know, drowning myself in work to sort of not confront these very personal, emotional battles that that were going on inside of me. And this project forced me to do that. Because again, my heart could not not be here. And episode two, for example, is about meeting Selena's father and and really going deep into their relationship and their dynamic and and you know he's been portrayed as a sort of exacting controlling demanding short fuse machista guy and her as a sort of like playful but nonetheless sort of docile daughter and it's more complicated than that Abraham admits he was a stringent calculating father to his big-hearted daughter. And Selena was so warm. Yeah, but see, I was always correcting her. Don't do that. Be careful here. Don't spend too much time talking to this guy. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that would be controlling. That's giving my kids guidance. And when I was reporting it, I could not not think about my own father who died in a tragic accident, um, you know, a, a year before I started this project. And I had just sort of drowned myself in work after his passing. And then when I was reporting on the story and spending time with Abraham and talking to Abraham, like I... I couldn't not deal with my own personal pain because I was mm. 
thinking a lot and writing about Latino fatherhood and about the relationship of Latino daughters and Latino fathers and about the stereotypes and the narratives we tell ourselves about those relationships. And this podcast has given me the gift, like the gift of navigating my own pain, navigating these very scary questions about my own identity. And yeah, no, it's horrifying. But I'm here. It's a gift. And somebody once told me like, what you're scared to write about, what makes you the most scared to confront, that's what you should be writing. And so this is this is my attempt at that. So why is Selena still relevant 25 years after her death? More in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Okay, so Maria, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how Selena went from being a celebrity into becoming an icon? She was like beta Latin boom, you know, like right. <laughs> uh, we're talking about 1994, 1995, right before she died when she was essentially ascending to Latino royalty. Um, she won the Grammy. Think about where we were, right, as a country in 1995. It was right in the middle of a huge demographic shift. Mm. The Latino population grew by 60% between 1990 and 2000. So 95 was right in the middle of it. There were palpable and very obvious anxieties around immigrants and specifically Mexican immigrants. If Latinos were not being erased, they were being portrayed as gang members or lost dropouts or teenage moms. And then here comes Selena, just flipping that narrative around. So before she even died, whether she wanted to be or not, the world immediately appropriated her as a symbol for an ascending Latino identity, for saying, Mm -hmm. look, Latinos can do this. Latinos can be themselves. Latinos can be joyful. Latinos can succeed in the United States. And then when she died... That was amplified 
astronomically because yeah. suddenly and, and think about like at the time like where we were in terms of like media right like you know think about the oj simpson trial this was sort of the beginning of like the precursors of reality tv yeah. in the 90s and so suddenly her death was a top story in English networks and in Spanish networks, incredibly anomalous for the time. So sort of like a shared experience between like the Latino community and like the broader white American community is basically. Yeah. And so I don't want to give it all away, but <laughs> in the po- in the podcast, we basically, you know, we argue that Selena, her image, her likeness has become this shorthand for an entire American experience, Mm. for Latino identity. She has become one of the most potent symbols of belonging in this country. And so, you know, we argue that Selena has come to represent Latinidad, what it looks like, what it sounds like to be Latino. And that's great. On the other hand, it has its limitations and it excludes people. Um, And so we unpack Latinidad, the the Mm. most modern iteration of Latino identity from the 90s until now for the last quarter century. And we talk about where, how Selena came to form that identity and what that identity represents, who it represents now and who it doesn't. Yeah. What do you think Selena broke through the way that she did? Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's try to bottle it in a five-minute answer. (laughs) Um, One, I think she was a true artist. Look, like her talent and her discipline as a musician as an artist who cared about her craft, who was meticulous about her craft, that is like the main reason, you know? We're here still talking about her because she had such a stage presence. I mean, she commanded an audience. Like, she had the charisma that really only very, very, very few of us have. And so I think that you know there was there was just like a natural effervescence and a natural talent and she was a disciplined musician and all of that came across on stage but then also i think it's also because there was a hunger at the time and there still is that's why 25 years later we are still so attached to her because there is a hunger to see Latino joy, Latino effervescence, and in her case, like brown pride, brown joy. There Mm. is a hunger to see that because there's not enough of it. I want to ask about a specific scene in the third episode. And it's it's sort of a, a friction that has stuck with me the most. That sequence where Howard Stern is like glibly responding to Selena's death, right? Um, And there's this sort of moment where um, he's being sort of being an asshole about it. Um, And I feel like in that sequence, in that moment, in that interaction, like the entirety of like white, non-white relations relations in America was sort of like bottled into that, which is the, the, the fight is like, just like understand where we're coming from. Right. Just like see us and, and this sort of, like harsh refusal to do that and i'm curious as to why you decided to sort of attend to that moment to to like 
Howard Stern as, as a sort of like the avatar of that kind of friction in that episode. But also, do you think that sort of relation between white, like white and all-white culture like has sort of changed at all since that moment in the 90s? It's interesting. I did not know about this Howard Stern tape until we started doing the reporting and the research for the podcast. I was, you know, nine years old, the the daughter of Mexican immigrants. And so Howard Stern was not in my world. And then when I heard the tape, oh, you know, as a grown woman, when I heard him talk about this woman whom I have been loving, who has become a sort of cultural deity, who has become this this way home for so many of us, this sacred symbol. When I heard him talk about her the way he did, it was so cutting. Let's dance to a happy Madonna-like music. <laughs> Let's dance and forget the people starving to dance. Oh, my God. <laughs> You know, it felt like these old wounds, like these like these old wounds like opened up. Um, And the reason that I that we sort of that we hung that episode on that confrontation is because to me that was so illustrative of all of the tensions in the 90s that I was just talking about. Like, it just, it all boiled down. It all manifested in this, like, horrible, crass radio fight. And it's like all of these feelings among, you know, Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans and, like, the white mainstream can pretty much be be unpacked in that conversation. As you said, like it is Mexican-Americans just saying like, hey, we're here and you're hurting us. You know, we're here and like, let us mourn and like, let us be human. And and it's the other side saying, to me, at least what I hear when I when I hear that tape is them saying, but you're not human or at least you don't deserve you know, the right to mourn, the right to be as as humans do. And, you know, I talk about this in the episode, like this was particularly um, difficult for me because it made me think so much of the women in Juarez being from the border, the women in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico who disappeared, many of them who worked for American corporations in factories of American corporations across the border in Mexico, and how the world's just did not seem to care about their deaths, you know. And Selena, Selena was on the other side of the border. Selena had been afforded a whole new life. But at the end of the day, there was this disregard, the same disregard for her life too. And I don't think... I don't think we've changed all that much, you know? Like, I chose that. I I feel like I kind of figured it out. That's what you're going to say. Yeah, like, I chose that moment because, like, if you hear it, you're like, oh, this sounds like a conversation that that can happen today. So uh, the show debuted two weeks ago, um, and you're going to be dealing with, like, weekly drops for the next few months. But once the show wraps, what's the first thing you're going to do? Um... I, 
I think I'm gonna go like hide somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I I've been wanting to go to Joshua Tree. Um, Selena recorded one of her last videos there, Amor Prohibido, mm. and I think I'm just gonna disconnect a little bit and look inward and take a rest. I think I think that's what I'm gonna do and probably cry a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, I'm sure there will still be some residual feelings. But yeah, and if I can just say, like, I don't think we talk enough about gratitude. And I just want to say, like, I I will be so grateful. Like, I think I, I already am. Like, I'm just so grateful that I get this opportunity to tell her story, to, like, write her this ode you know, and to explore myself in the process. Um, and like, that's the gift. That's the gift of creative work. And I'm, I'm so thankful for it. And so, yeah, I think I'll do a lot of, a lot of gratitude crying. <laughs> well, uh, I hope you get to go to Joshua Tree and, and cry a lot on the way. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vic. Thank you so much for having me. Servant Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Suaje, James Trout, and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servantapod is a production of Alias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.